everyone, and welcome to the All It Takes a Goal podcast, the best place in the entire world, including all of Canada, to learn how to build new thoughts, new actions, and new results. I'm your host, John Acuff, and today I'm joined by Ryan Holiday. Who's that? I'm so glad you asked. Ryan Holiday is the best-selling author of Trust Me, I'm Lying, The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, Conspiracy, and a ton of other books about marketing, culture, and the human condition. His work has been translated into over 30 languages, and he's appeared everywhere from the New York Times to Fast Company. He's actually sold more than 4 million books, which in book terms is one bajillion books. That is so phenomenal. Like, That's such a big deal. He and his wife own a bookstore right outside of Austin, Texas called The Painted Porch Bookshop. He's written a brand new book called Discipline is Destiny, which I loved, and he's a friend. It's been a while since we've hung out, but it's always fun to catch up with him at speaking events. You're going to love this interview. Ryan's probably most well-known for his fresh take on stoicism, and it's really fun to talk through those ideas with him. But first a quick message about the sponsor of today's episode. Every year, I set crazy big goals, and every year, there's one productivity tool that I use to help me reach them, the Finish Calendar. I've been using it for over a decade, and it's helped me crush goals like running a 1,000 miles in a year, growing my business, and writing a New York Times bestselling book. Thousands of people have bought them over the years too. Why? because it works. It's not magic, it's science. Study after study has shown how important tracking your year is. But my favorite came from the University of Kostanz in Germany. They showed that when you track when and where you're going to work on something, you double your chances of success. Let me say that again, you double your chances of success. This calendar is massive. It's beautiful, it's motivational, and it comes in paper or dry erase. On top of all the other amazing features, you can choose to display it vertically or horizontally because this bad boy is also double-sided. If you've got a big goal or a lot of big goals, Grab a finished calendar today at finishcalendar.com. Once again, that's finishcalendar.com. All right, let's let's jump into my conversation with Ryan Holiday. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think the last time we talked, I, you gave a talk right before me in Nashville. Yep. For that thing, Jeff Goins. Yeah, hundred percent. That's what it was. Um, and we we got to talk a little backstage, but it's been it's been years and years. I want to jump right in because I read the book um, "Discipline Is Destiny." Love it. There was a lot in here that I thought, oh my gosh. But the thing that really got me, the thing that really made me love it, was the afterward, where you talk about the process of writing the book. Um, because there's a section in there where you mention that writing books previously was tough on your family. Your wife got a call once from an editor that said, congratulations on this project. And I'm also sorry because of how hard it is when you write a book. And what made me laugh about that was four years ago, I signed the best book deal I've ever had. And my wife said, hey, you're a jerk for the two years when you write a book and you're a jerk for the two years when you sell it. And that doesn't work for me. She said, I'd rather you be a happy plumber than a miserable writer. So for, for you to share that one made me feel seen Um, But two, how is the writing of this one different from the writing of other books, the process for your family, for your health, for your stress levels, all of it? I'm sort of on a weird trip right now because, uh, and I think you'll relate to this as an author, I too signed the best book deal of my life uh, about 
two and a half, three years ago, I signed a four book deal to do four books on the cardinal virtues. So courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom. So uh, that's a lot. Four books period is a lot. But I don't know what exactly I was thinking, or uh, maybe I wasn't thinking, but I agreed to do one book a year for four consecutive years. Mm. Uh, and so uh, as I was getting ready to start the first one, I had two kids under three and then a pandemic happened. So like, it's been crazy over here. And I'm trying to, I love what I do. I love being good at what I do, but I also love my kids and I love staying married. And so I've been trying to think about how do I do what I do sustainably, right? Like what we do isn't like professional basketball where you have a six-year window on average mm -hmm. and then your body gets old, you fall apart, and then you get to go do whatever you want. And hopefully you made so much money that it makes up for that period, right? Yep. Or you're starting a business. It's like, hey, I'm starting this and I'm going to sell it in five years. But, but a lot of things are you have a window and you have to be unbalanced in that window, and then hopefully you become more balanced. What's lovely about writing is, even uh, as opposed to music, is that you could conceivably do it until the day you die and do it for a, at a high level, mm -hmm. but you cannot do it at a high level until the day you die sustainably if you don't make changes and adjustments. And certainly if you want to, at the at, on that final day, also have a family around you, not be what they call an art monster. So I've really tried to think about how do I do what I do more sustainably? And I'd like to think that with each project, I'm getting better at it, but I'm just in the middle now of starting the third book in the series, because this one's coming out and then I have to be mid midway through the other one to hit the same marks. How can I, with each project, figure out more and more what is actually important, what's not important, how I can do it as efficiently as possible and without torturing myself or other people around me at the same time. I, I love that. And that for me, it's been a process of going, it takes about five to 700 hours to write a book and I have a chart on my wall and I can chart it out and go, if I do a couple hours at a time, and then I start to take notes on the process and go the first hundred hours, I don't know what it is. Hour 25, I'm yes. like, I got the book figured out. It's amazing. I tell a bunch of people. And then five hours later, I'm like, it's a dumb idea. And so that, for me, making it a tangible, practical thing versus a mysterious art project where it's my soul on paper and writers say things like, I open a vein and I bleed. Um, it's It's been fun to do that. And I, I think what I liked about this book was I felt like it answered a question I've had for years. And the question was, why do successful people blow it? Like, why do, I think that's one of the questions the book answers where, why does an NBA player who made $80 million go bankrupt? Why does a president who had all the power cheat in a way that, why does a pastor have a mega church fall? What for you was the question you were trying to answer with this book? Yeah, I think what's interesting about discipline is discipline is required to be great at anything, but that's often what. Our, our inherent discipline or the natural discipline is often what set us down the path to begin with. So like, like some people, they don't work hard enough. They don't work at all. They don't get off the couch and they, they have trouble with getting discipline, period. But I actually find it's more common with talented, successful, driven people that they have to figure out how to be disciplined about what makes them great, right? So um, 
me, it's not, hey, do I have enough energy to get up and run today? It's more, I haven't been feeling well or my knee hurts. Can I be disciplined enough to not run today, right? Yeah. And risk yeah. injury, right? Um, uh, so, so how do you become disciplined about your discipline? And that's really what I think seems to happen to really successful people is that they, they just have this single gear or this single form of discipline, which is work harder, work longer, sacrifice more. And that can make you successful. It can also come at the cost of all the things around you. Um, I was reading about Tom Brady, uh, and obviously he's one of the most driven, disciplined, uh, greatest football players of all time, but, but, and, and recently left New England to go to, to, to Tampa Bay. Um, and a lot of people thought this was for a bunch of different reasons. He doesn't like Bill Belichick. He wants more control, blah, blah, blah. There's a letter that Giselle wrote him, his wife, and she said, look, you are meant to play football. You are happy when you play football. We are happy when you play football. But you can't keep playing football like this. We hope you play football as yeah. long as your body is able to do it. But the path that you are on is not sustainable. You have to find a way to play a more balanced, sustainable form of football. And part of the reason he went to Tampa Bay was his family wanted better weather. He wanted better weather, right? He wanted a system that was, a, that was still driven and wanted to win, but was not win at all costs, right? And, and I related to that because once you have done, once you've reached the heights of what you do, you hit the bestseller list or you've written something you're really proud of or you break through, you sign to this or that, you've got to figure out a new definition of success. And that definition should be more inclusive and not just about squeezing more blood from the stone. You know what I mean? Yeah. So for you, how do you have those pullback moments? Because for me, it was, again, my wife saying, hey, this sucks. I don't, this feels terrible. I'd rather you do a day yeah. job as an accountant. Because for me, my problem was my fuel was stress and chaos. And so I had to kind of imagine things were falling apart so I could save the day. And so I had to be like, if I don't write mm -hmm. the best book, we're, we're going to lose the farm. Like the bank is going to take the farm. And that wasn't true. It hadn't been true for 10 years, but I was using an old fuel. So for you, what are the pullback moments where you go, okay, I'm about to try to do 10 books this, this year. Like I need to pull it back or I'm, I'm regulating how long my playtime is with my kids and I don't want to have them on a watch. Like what are your pullback moments? Well, I, I've had one, which I'm sure you can relate to as a writer, which is that as you become successful as a writer, you get an opportunity to do a bunch of other stuff that's not writing, yeah. right? Speaking, podcast, travel, uh, consulting, etc. cetera. Um, and... I've come to different points. The pandemic was illustrated this for me when all of that fell away. Suddenly I had so much more time to write. Right. Yeah. Uh, and to uh, I, I realized that, uh, you know, those first months of the pandemic, I, I live on this farm outside Austin and I we spent a lot more time on our property. And it was like, it's really beautiful here. And then I realized, mm -hmm. oh, I was usually gone this time of year. Right. Yeah. And and that I wasn't experiencing it. So for me, one of the pullback moments is am I not actually getting time to do the thing that I like doing, which is writing? Like, is the reward for being successful at what I do having next to no time to do that thing? So the a sports thing, like let's say what you love about sports is, or, 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 or any kind of coaching, uh, executive coaching, like I love making people better, the one-on-one -on -one time with human beings. 
Well, and then as you become successful, you build this business, all your time's on paperwork, all your time's you're not doing the actual thing that attracted you to do that thing. And what what success is that? Where success is actually depriving you of the thing that makes you who you are. That to me, that's tragic. So one of the big pullback moments is, am I having time to write? Am I having time to be still, to be at home, to enjoy the things that came with the success? And if I'm not, then I'm actually not successful and I'm not free. I'm a slave to this thing that I built. And that's not winning. And it, I heard you say on a podcast once that moving out of New York City helped you unplug from some of that competitive kind of tide that was that carries people, sure. people out. Is that part of why Austin makes sense for you? Well, so I live about 35 minutes from Austin in a little town of about 8,000 people. The county is about 90,000. But I am the, as far as I know, like the only author that lives here, right? Yeah. Um, there's nobody... There, there's nobody like us there. There's lots of people I like, people who do yeah. other things that people are successful at that thing. But there's no one I'm bumping up into and I'm like, oh, how did he, how did they get that? Yeah. Right? There's no one yeah. that like is getting my competitive juices going. And it's not that I'm not competitive. It's that I am competitive and I don't need to be spurred to go faster. That I already have that handled. What I need is reminders that there are other things in life that are important. And so... Um, it's, it's, that's been really, really great. And I'll, I'll, I, maybe you, you were in this group. There was a Facebook group uh, for speakers a couple of years ago that we were, I think we were both in it. Um, mm. I forget what it's called, but I, I remember I was in a, a, a Facebook group for, for people who do what we do. And everyone would talk about their fees and they would talk about, and it was helpful to see people talking about business. And then I just realized every time I saw this, all I was thinking was like, how do I measure up a, a, in relation to these yeah. other people? And that, and that that was sucking the joy out of me doing the thing. And so it, obviously you can't just pretend you live in a fantasy world where other things aren't happening and you can't just run away from stuff. But I do think you can set up your life, your system, your social media, your inputs to keep what the Joneses are doing outside of your view. It's like a horse. They put blinders on the horse. Yeah. So the horse goes forward and it doesn't look around to see what the other horses are doing that doesn't help anyone. I, I think that's really wise. And and just a lot of self-awareness of, okay, hey, here's my level. Here's the level where I've moved past where it's comfortable to me or where it's helpful to me. For me, it's like there were a couple of events where I found myself measuring in the green room. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't like this. Like this is, I'm trying to yeah. make the right connections. Like I was no longer present at the event. I was trying to go, what could this thing turn into if I, and it just like, there was this one hallway at this one event that I did for like five years and I dreaded the green room more than on stage because it brought out this side of me that I was like, oh, like, I don't, I don't want that. And so I think the willingness to kind of pull that back, because one of the things you said on the Joe Rogan interview recently, and I, I thought it was fantastic. I thought you did an amazing oh, job you. of that interview. It was so fun to listen to. You guys got into this discussion about why don't successful people often have successful kids? Like, you know, Marcus, mm -hmm. like his kid after, you know, um, there's presidents, the kid after, and you go, why, why aren't they able to do it? And I loved, you had this one little comment and you didn't really sit on it long, but I thought it was so helpful. You said, well, successful people are often very busy. 
And I think sometimes we forget that if you're spending 90 hours a week building an empire, you casually know your kids, like just mathematically, like mathematically, you have, you pass each other. There's some, they're in a boarding school, maybe see them on the holidays, whatever. How do you, how do you think successful people can take a a temperature check in a, in a disciplined way and go, okay, I do want to have more interaction with my wife. I do want this to end with, there's somebody, you know, that I spend my life with, not just they're kind of bit players in the story of me. Yeah, the Highway Women have a song about, and it has a line in it about a cr- the crowded table, that you're going to want a crowded table. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's like a definition of success. You want people around you. Success, if success is inherently isolating or solitary, like that seems like more of a prison sentence than, a, than, a, than success to me. Uh, and so thinking about what are you doing all this for? That's the irony was like, why do you work so hard? Why are you gone so long? Oh, I'm doing this for my kids. Well, what do mm-hmm. your kids actually want? They want you, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and so it's this lie we tell ourselves. So one of the things that I've been thinking about, about the life that we tried to set up here is not just like, hey, is this better for me, uh, like headspace wise, but like, can like... Uh, my office is above a business we own on Main Street in this little town. My son goes to school like a few blocks away, right? Mm-hmm. My house, not far away either. Our whole thing is in a very small radius that reduces commute times, that makes popping in and out. Like I was working yesterday and my wife stopped by with my son and she was like, I'm exhausted can I take a nap in your office and you watch uh, my son? I was like, of course, right? And I was like, this is my dream. Like my dream is that I'm writing and that I'm able to dip in and out of these different things. My dream is not to be in a hotel room in Chicago FaceTiming with my kids. Now I might (laughs) sometimes have to do that and there might be reasons to do that. But for the most part, I want to have a base and I want to have a routine and a system in which uh, I'm getting a lot of time with the people that I want to spend time with. And I think you 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 don't want your kids, uh, obviously your kids uh, want you to have a positive impact on the world. They want you to fulfill your dreams. They want you to be fulfilled also. But you, you don't want them to say something to the effect of, you had time for so many other people, but you never had time for me, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so making decisions that set you up for success in that regard, I think are really important. And to bring this back to the book, require discipline, right? It's easy to just say yes to everything because there's money in it, because there's attention in it, because it's there and you don't want to hurt other people's feelings. It takes discipline to, to keep the main thing, the main thing, as they say, um, to, to make hard decisions, to sacrifice. Um, it, it takes discipline just to be present, to be where you are while you're there and to not be, as you're saying, comparing yourself to other people, wondering about the next thing. At the core of all these things is discipline. Discipline is not just, can you lift heavy weights, right? Discipline is, or, or can you not eat fattening foods? Discipline is also, hey, this is what's important to me. That thing sounds really cool and fun, but I'm going to have to pass. Even if it's something you've worked for, because that's what's interesting because of your success, you're getting asked to do more things than you've ever been asked before. So it's not that you, the more successful you get, the better your boundaries have to get. I think sometimes 
we yeah. we forget that tension and and you did an Instagram uh, video about that that I thought was really interesting where you said and this is this you know boundaries are all through this book this idea of like here's what the queen will do won't do here's you know here's how deliberate you know different people are you went to an event and you'd set clear boundaries you step off stage and they rush up and go hey here's seven other things you want we want you to do and in that moment, yeah. you've just enjoyed the on-stage moment. My assistant and I joke that if someone asked me to be on a podcast right after I've spoken on stage, it could be like the Golden yeah. Doodle Owner Club podcast. And like I have four listeners. I'll be like, I'm doing it. I don't even have a Golden Doodle. Sign me up because I'm so full of adrenaline. But I thought it was really totally. interesting how you shared that. So somebody that would say, okay, Ryan, how do I start to engage in discipline? Or how do I start to set some boundaries for my life? What would you say to them? Well, it, it, specifically in this, it's like uh, prevention is the ultimate cure, right? And so one of the reasons that you would have, like, well, I know people that are like, I don't have a speaking agent, I do it all myself. And it's like, that sounds like it puts you in a position where you have to make a lot of decisions and have a lot of conversations Ugh. that are probably draining, right? And, and obviously, this is, uh, I'm using this as an analogy, you, it, whatever the version of that is in your life, like, ideally, I would have had a person who... I got off stage and they were there for me to, to if, if I know that, hey, or if you know, when you get off stage, you, uh, you um, have trouble regulating what you say yes or no to, you need someone to help run interference for that. You want to prevent that. Just like if you're like, hey, I'm someone, I'll look for an excuse to not do this. Well, how do I reduce the opportunities to give myself that excuse? Like James Clear talks about laying out your workout clothes so when you get out of bed in the morning you have to step over them and not put them on right it's like uh if you're someone who has trouble with your phone which i do i have a rule one i don't sleep with my phone in the room right so i can't touch it in the middle of the night and i don't touch it for the first one hour that i'm awake that's the rule that i have so that makes it less likely that i get sucked into stuff that i shouldn't get sucked into from the beginning or I don't have social media on my phone. It's on a different phone, right? And so I don't have it in my pocket all the time to be tested by. And so I think one of the best ways to have boundaries is just to set up rules or systems or structures where those boundaries aren't even being touched, right? Um, uh, that, that, that's, that's how I would think about it at, at first. And then once you have built a habit of it, then you can, you know, you can trust yourself a little bit more, but, it, but it, to me, it's, it's about that prevention first and foremost. For me, I, yeah, I, I can't sleep. If the phone's in my room at night, it's over. Like I'm going to spend until 1am watching like videos of Singapore's top stingray breeder. And I'm not even in the market for a stingray, yes. but I'm like, if this guy's really got a great stingray business in Singapore, if I'm ever in the market for a stingray, thank you, YouTube, for showing me that. What are some other rules that you that you found in the kind of the owner's manual of Ryan Holiday that have helped you have sustainable success, be present, little thing, you know, the not using the phone for an hour, having I had to delete Twitter from my phone two years ago because I couldn't have that much anger in my pocket, my own anger and other people's mm -hmm. angers. What's some other little rules that you found helpful in, in what you do? I, I would say, and I learned this from, I, I'm, I'm, you might know him too, I learned this from Steve Cam, uh, who does nerd fitness. He was like, have rules and don't be, don't be uh, shy about saying that they're rules. So if you're like, I have a rule that I don't, uh, uh, I don't do X, Y, or Z. Like, hey, I don't, I, your rule is, 
I don't make podcast scheduling decisions. That goes to this person. They're like, oh, okay, I'll talk to this person. And then you can tell that person whatever you want, but it creates a buffer between you and that thing. Or you're like, hey, I don't accept free gifts, right? Don't send that to me. Or, hey, I don't... Uh, I don't do like I, uh, I I say I I just don't get on the phone. That's one of my rules is like I just don't get on the phone. You can email me about stuff or um, or whatever, but like I just never get on the phone. So when people are like, hey, let's get on the phone and talk about it, I'm like, hey, sorry, I don't get on the phone. And they're like, oh, okay. And then if they don't want to interact, they don't want to interact. But uh, I'm setting rules in advance, and you'd be you could make up the most ridiculous rule, but if you told people that that was your rule they'd be like, oh, it's a yeah. rule, yeah. right? Like they respect it when it's a rule. And when you're like, I don't know if I can, I got this and I got that. That feels like a discussion. But when you're like, I have a rule that I don't do this, um, people respect that. So I, I, I am clear about that. Um, I'm trying to think what are other rules that I have? That like I, what that you I, like one of my rules is I don't do breakfast meetings because it's too expensive. Like my best writing time is in the morning. So Ooh, if somebody yeah, says, hey, let's sure. get together. Great. Four o'clock at this coffee shop. And if they go, well, I don't I can't meet in the afternoon. Then that's fine. We're not. But like the let's screw around at 9 a.m. when that's my best writing yeah. time doesn't make any sense to me. So that's a rule of. Breakfast meetings are too That's expensive. That's a way to write off no the to. day from the beginning. Yeah. Like, yeah. so I, I have a similar thing. I, nothing is allowed to be scheduled in my calendar before 10 a.m. Yep. Uh, so that, that space is mine to write and to work. Obviously, and 10 a.m. works because sometimes you can get people in different time zones. The, the people who really yeah. has to be in the morning. Sometimes I can make it work by 10, but I don't do that. The, another rule I have for my uh, assistant is um, no more than three things in the calendar per day. So, um, you can't schedule five podcasts that I have to record or four meetings or two meetings, a podcast. And then also you have a dentist appointment, only three things in the calendar. I of course do more than three things a day. Um, I like to have as blank a calendar as possible though, because yeah. if it's yeah. blank, then I'm going to spend it on writing. I'm going to spend it on reading. I'm going to spend it with my family. It, I, I don't like my time being spoken for. So my default is, or, or my preferred thing is nothing. So when you're scheduling it, you only have three slots, right? And, and that seems to limit a lot of the things or, or just push it far enough in the future that it will come on a day when I don't have 10 other things to do. Well, and if you push it far in the future and you have the three rule, then you know it won't be 10 things on that day. Because that's what I've had to exactly. learn is that- yes. I in the past would screw future me because I'd be like, I don't want to do this, but the guy in the future will do it. He's fine. And then guess what? I'm also the guy in the future. So when it shows up six months later, I'm like, why did past me say yes to this thing that there was never going to be a day I wanted to do this? Um, and pushing it well, forward I, didn't I help. Was talking to a, I was talking to a financial advisor one time and I was making some decisions and, and he said, um, I noticed that all the choices that you seem to make um, at best, assume you will be as successful as you are now, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, uh, financial advisors, they want to prepare for a rainy day, et cetera. But he's like, you seem to only be assuming, he's like, you keep seeming to assume that this will end, that you'll stop being uh, sought after or wanted, mm -hmm. that you'll stop being well compensated for what you do. He's like, you also have to assume or plan, what if you continue to be successful? What if the trajectory goes upwards? He meant that um, don't live your life or make decisions as if you're suddenly gonna run out of money. You should also 
bet on yourself. And, and, and so I think about that, like when you're like, oh, I'll do it in the future. What you're really assuming is that in the future, you'll be less busy. Right. Yeah. And when has that ever been the case? Right. Like actually, no, if you're doing things right now, if you're doing them correctly, you should be more sought after, more busy in the future. You should have more inbound. So this idea of like, oh, it's busy now and everyone wants a piece of me now. But, you know, in five years, then I'll spend time with my kids because uh, I won't, you know, my window will be closed. Yeah. It's like there is no window. You're actually going to mm -hmm. keep doing it. And so this idea of delayed gratification or, uh, you know, Langston Hughes talks about a dream deferred. The idea that in the future you're going to have all this white space, in a weird way, you're, you're betting against yourself there. Mm -hmm. It's kind of pessimistic. Yeah, it's very, it's very pessimistic. And it, it doesn't allow for things to grow or mature or get better. The, the, one of the things I liked about the book, and the book is so well researched, and I'm going to ask a couple questions about your process as we go. But I love that they are just little details about things I'd never heard of. Like Sandra, you know, is it Sandra Day O'Connor? Is that her name? That yeah. her Yeah, the Supreme Court judge. That her husband had Alzheimer's and fell in love with a different patient and she had to walk him through that. Like that was you like a subtle, like that was as heartbreaking as anything I've read in in, in any book. And I had never heard that. And then Harry Belafonte hiring an assistant for Martin Luther King Jr.'s family because that would free him up to be MLK. You know, like there were so many things in there. What's your process like as you're gathering stories, you're gathering, I know you have note cards is kind of your system. When you're going through something like this, that on every page, there's an idea, there's a principle, and then it's backed up by five or six books often that, you know, like they're great comedians have brevity, like Gary Goleman. There's not wasted words in a Gary Goleman bit. There's brevity. Every word, sure. every word is lifting weights. The same as this true of this book. Walk us through how you're engaging a topic like discipline. So I, I read all the time. I love reading. Uh, and I started in this business as a research assistant uh, for a great writer named Robert Greene. But as I read, I'm, I'm just marking stuff down that's interesting. And I transfer all those things to note cards. So like this is a stack of note cards that I'm working yeah. on now for a couple different chapters. And I just ra I'm just randomly acquiring. I'm just like uh, uh, gathering as many supplies as firewood as possible or whatever, right? And then uh, when it comes time to sit down and work on a book, I go through everything that I have and I start to sort it together. What are the things that I want to say? What are the important themes I have? But more importantly, what are the patterns that seem to have emerged from the different things that I've been collecting over a period of years? And those sort of coalesce into chapters or themes or sections. And then those become uh, so like, for instance, this is a chapter that will be in the next book um, uh, that will be about, you know, the parable of the talents from yeah, the Bible, sure. uh, the three talents. I'm, I'm writing a, a chapter about that. I'll probably start it tomorrow. So I have. Uh, I don't remember where I first heard about that story, probably at church as a kid or something, but it always stuck with me. And then I have a bunch of different people talking about it. I have similar examples from it. You know, I just have all these different, you know, I have probably 20 note cards on this topic mm -hmm. that, that have just come together from the research that I've done. So I'll do the gist of that chapter as a first draft. And then I'll go back through my note cards again and I'll find all these other things that connect. So it's kind of, it's, it's a process of like getting the raw materials together, shaping it, and then refining it and refining it and refining it and cutting stuff 
until eventually what's left is, and thank you for the very kind words, a thing where every sentence, every idea is carrying weight around the idea or the argument that I'm trying to make in a specific chapter. That was something like that. Have you have you ever heard the Dorothy Parker definition of creativity? Because it's it sounds exactly like no. that. Her her definition is that creativity is a wild um, mind and a disciplined eye. So the wildness is you mm. gather all these things that you know the way a restaurant menu is written, something your kid said, something you found in an old book with your mind. And then you have the discipline of your eye to connect them in a way that no one's ever thought about before. And that's always, that's exactly what that process sounds like to me in a, in a really, really beautiful way. And I can't wait to read your thoughts on the talents. Cause that story um, is so fast. And there's a party when they get back, they, the guy who doubles the five doesn't feel ashamed that he doubled it. Cause I grew up, you know, my dad's a pastor. So some church tradition, it's, you should be ashamed of success and the talent story is the opposite. And how per, how perfect is, at least how I read the story, how perfect is the double meaning of the word talent? There, oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like talent was a unit of, of money then, a lot of money. But, but I think it's really about like what, what gifts have you been given as a person? Do you hide them? Do you uh, invest them? Uh, or do and do you put that or do you put them to use? Do you grow them? Right. To me, that's what that story is about. Uh, and so I'll, I'll find somebody I'll build that around. But to me, the message of that story, and this is what I'm going to talk about in, in justice, is like justice isn't just like, hey, what do you do for other people? But like, do you do justice the potential that you have been given as a human being? Because where would the world be if people didn't do that? If they didn't tap into all of that, if they didn't bring bring all those talents to the table. If you didn't it, realize it, your potential, if, if everyone was 12% yeah. of what they were capable of being, the world would be unlivable. Well, and we, we did a study where we asked 3,000 people if they feel like they're living up to their potential. This PhD who helps me with yeah. research and 96% said no. And 50% of the people felt like 50% of their talent was untapped, which is crushing when you, and you know, and, and when you're not living out of it, there's a real sadness. There's a real frustration. Um, so I can't, yeah, I can't wait to, to hear that, that, you know, your, your version, your take on that. Cause there's also a degree of, he gave that them talents based on their ability. Like they are, they had already shown yeah. some ability and then, then there was the five, two, and then, there's an interesting parallel between that with the parable of the landowner who hires people throughout the day and he pays them all the same wage. So the guy who got paid one hour gets paid the same as 12. And there's this sense oh, of like, okay, there's not fairness there. So as you're doing, you're looking through your cards, what stories started to emerge from you about discipline? Where you, you say, okay, wow, these individuals are starting to take the center stage when I think about discipline. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a, an interesting example that that sort of actually took discipline too. So uh, I, the first uh, main character of the book is Lou Gehrig. He's the example, the exemplar of sort of physical discipline, the longest you know streak in the history of baseball. Uh, just a grueling iron, uh, just a grueling uh, iron horse of a man that what he undergoes. But I, I, I wanted to talk next in the book about sort of. Uh, temperament, like sort of emotional discipline. And I was like, you know who might be interesting is, is Queen Elizabeth II. So I went and I got a book about her. And it was okay. I didn't really find anything I loved. And I was like, I just read a thousand page. Uh, it's actually this book here. This book, this book is 
685 pages. And oh, man. it didn't give me close to what I close yeah. to what I needed. Right. So I could have given up. I could have said, all right, maybe I'll find someone else yeah. uh, who works. And I was like, you know what? No, I really I really want to build it around a, a female character and a not American female character. So I was like, let me go back to the well. So then I read some other book about Queen Elizabeth and another book about Queen Elizabeth and another book about Queen Elizabeth. And then this isn't all of them. This is just the ones that I could find immediately behind me. But this is this is. Some of the books yeah. that I read around Queen, I, I read 4,000 pages about this one person. And only after I read 4,000 pages did I go, okay, I think I, ha did I feel confident enough and comfortable enough that I had the material that I wanted? And, and, you know, I think maybe earlier in my career, maybe I would have settled, I would have gone in the, e the, the easier direction, or I would have tried to, you know, is there a way I could do it without having all the material? How can I, how can I, you know, puffs, ex uh, uh, cut or extend what I have, mm -hmm. um, but but when you when you find something you want to do or say, discipline is then usually the necessary ingredient to pull it off. That it takes the discipline to see through that, to lean into that, to not take the easy, to You're not right, be discouraged I, the first time. Yep, yeah. yeah. to not give up on the on the second book or the third book. So Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth emerges, and it, it seems like, as far as the reading process goes, you mentioned you were a research assistant for Robert Greene. And were you 19 at, yes. at that time? Yeah, I, I met him when I was about 19 years old, and I, I worked for him for, for most of my 20s. I worked on three different books that he did. Mm -hmm. And he showed me, the note cards I was showing me, that's from the system that I learned being an apprentice to him. He would say, go read this book that I don't want to read that I'm pretty sure there isn't something usable in. But if you come up with something, that would be helpful to me. So it was kind of like I would get all the unpleasant tasks and I would have to try to try to, you know, sort of fight to get something in. It's like a joke writer at a at a at a, a late show. Right. You're like you're mm -hmm. there's seven spots in the monologue. Can one of your jokes get picked up? And my my thing was, can I just find a few things that are usable to him? And so I would read again huge books that had nothing in them and 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 the, the process of like developing this kind of i remember robert said to me once he's like you have to become like a shark that can smell just like a single drop uh, of blood in the ocean yeah. from fire you have to develop this ability to just sort of intuit and that's what i think was going on with the queen elizabeth thing is like for some reason i knew that what i wanted was there yeah. but i had to i had to swim through a lot of water to find it you had a big ocean ahead of you and you had to stay on the single yeah. drop. That is, that yeah. is so perfect. And so at 19, you go and do that. Were you always disciplined as a person? Because I, I think there's throughout your career, you can see these moments where you, there's an obvious path or there's a safe path or there's a common path and you zig and then, it, and then it works and you build, 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 build. And then you zig again and it works. works really, were you always disciplined? Were you always willing to bet on yourself? Cause there's several moments in your career where you can see that you're like, you know what, this feels like the smarter path. I'm going to bet on me. Were you always that way? Or is it something you learned over time? I, I don't know. That's, that kind of feels like two separate things. I mean, I, I definitely have taken big risks in my career, done an un, the untraditional versus the traditional thing. I don't know. If, to me, that would be more in the bucket if we're looking at the cardinal virtues. That's the, the courage to sort of bet on yourself yeah. or take risks. To me, discipline is the, okay, now you've taken the risk. 
well, are you going to give it everything you have or are you going to hold or are you going to uh, you're going to hold something back. You're going to look for an excuse or you're going to just hope you get lucky. Um, I I feel like I've been disciplined professionally uh, always. Like I, I've always like when when I like what I'm doing or I'm creatively fulfilled, I'm really into it. I, I, I've always been a worker, but I've had to get I think all of us as you get older, you experience different things. You You discover new things that you didn't know you needed to be disciplined about. Right. Um, so I think. Uh, for me, most of the discipline that I've had to develop has been more in the second part of the book, the, the a part of the ideas about temperance, a uh, temperament, which is like, okay, how do you keep your temper in check? How do you keep your emotions in check? How do you um, not be paralyzed by perfectionism, right? How can you focus in a time of distract? Like I've had to develop th- those other domains of discipline that you know i just really either wasn't being tested in before or it didn't matter right like if you only work for yourself you can be the worst boss in the world like you can be an abusive boss to yourself let's say but then you work you work people work with you and you're like i don't like being talked to that way or like that's not how i perform at my best you have to figure out how to you know you can't get frustrated with another person the way you can get frustrated with yourself. And I, mm-hmm. I've had to develop, I think, better habits, better practices, better standards, being more disciplined as my thing has expanded from like a sole proprietorship to this thing that interacts with all these other people. It's same going with getting married, same with having kids. You know, you're just your circle or the things you bump into are so much more complicated if you don't have discipline in all things, you know, it's not going to go well. Well, and you mentioned your marriage. I, I've seen you write before about, and I don't think you use these exact words, but it was in essence that a strong, healthy, loving marriage is such a life hack nobody talks about. Like, no, we don't give it enough yeah, attention. Yeah, it's very weird. So, like, why do you think we don't talk about that? And and how has your marriage, can you know, continue to be part of what you're able to do in a full sustainable because you've had you've had the amount of success that has wrecked other people like you've had you could never write another book again like you could you could be in austin and just own cattle and like whatever but you're still deliberate you're the book it like the books get better you see fiction writers who write a successful book that turns into a cop series and by book 37 you're like he's gonna kiss the girl he's gonna punch an alligator like they're mailing it in there's no sense of that in any of the work you do what role does your marriage have in kind of the sustained life you guys have well, thank you. I, I've been with my wife. We met actually in college. Uh, we were 19 or maybe 20. Um, but she's we've been together the whole time. And obviously we've changed and the relationship has changed and we were not married then. But we've been together sort of this whole crazy ride, which I think has been super helpful for exactly the reasons you said. And what you said about your own marriage, which is like you were going to do a project and your wife was like, wake up call moment. This is not working for you or for other people. You got to make a change. I think people people fear that being married or being in a relationship or having entanglements is going to uh, hold them back. And it will. It will hold you back from running off of a cliff, right? It will hold <laughs> you down to reality, right? These are... Im- very important things like there are so many moments 
it, big moments we were talking about where I took, you know, the untraditional path or whatever, but also moments where I doubted myself, moments where I screwed up, moments where I thought it was falling apart, moments where I could have said this or that. And I would not be here if I couldn't have gone home to my wife or called my wife, Samantha, and said, hey, what do you think I should do? I'm thinking about doing X. And she was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. You're going to ruin, you know, um, there, there's a there's a famous story about Winston Churchill, who famously said that uh, marrying, convincing his wife Clementine was the greatest decision he ever made because none of the other stuff would have been possible without it. But when when Winston Churchill is driven into the the political wilderness, as they call it, and the, there's the great uh, William Manchester series, there's just uh, a, a whole chapter where he's like alone, affected, or a whole volume where he's alone. He's sort of driven from public life. Um, you know, Winston Churchill being the driven, ambitious guy, like he doesn't take this rejection. He's like, oh, you know, I got to, I got to mount a comeback. I got to mount a comeback. He all he wanted to do was was mount a comeback. It was the patience and the counsel of his wife that was able to help him realize that that wasn't something that could be forced. And that he only got one shot at it. And if he did it too early, it wouldn't work. And so those 10 long years that he spends in the political wilderness before he is called back by the British people to lead Britain after after the war breaks out with Germany, that is only possible because of the self, not because of self-restraint, but because of the self-restraint that led him into the marriage, which gave him the restraint to not yeah. blow up his career and his chances of success. That paid dividends on dividends on dividends on dividends because that person yes. could tell him the yeah. truth. Um, he always had exactly. a truth teller, a truth teller in his life. It, it seems as if so. If we think about relationships, your your wife is obviously a critical, important relationship. If we think about topics, stoicism is is the topic that feels like has most captured your heart. When did you first bump into that? How did you say, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to dive deep into this. This is going to be one of the pillars of, of what I think about and care about. Yeah, uh, right around the same time I met my wife, actually, I, I read uh, Mark Cerullis's Meditations, which just sort of hit me like a ton of bricks. I just didn't know anything like that existed. I didn't know you could write that way. I didn't know this sort of tradition of thinking and uh, this way of living existed. I didn't know I didn't know philosophy was a practical, usable thing. I thought it was like big words about abstract questions. And so uh, it, it, it was exactly what I needed as a human being, like as a person. I was 20 years old and didn't know anything about life, but it was also exactly, it was also an enormous door or window into a way of thinking and a way of writing and a way of communicating. So those two journeys sort of happened simultaneously and culminated several years later in my first book about Stoic philosophy. But the, there was the sort of first journey into understanding it and thinking about it and reading about it and trying to apply it, not always with success, that, that came first. Did any of the response from other people surprise you so you know obstacle is the way like you sold four million books was there a time where there was a moment where you felt like wow the thing i thought was special other people are seeing it special too i mean when i went to my publisher i, I my first two books were about marketing and when i went to my publisher and i said hey you know i want to do this book about an obscure school of ancient philosophy <laughs> 
Yeah, they and they said, great, like, that's the one. Let's back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were not like, let's back up the Brinks truck and uh, <laughs> and see how much money we can pay you. It, it was yeah. actually a huge step backwards. Like I took, I took less than half for The Obstacle is the Way as I got for Trust Me, I'm Lying, my first book, um, which had done well, right? Yeah. So uh, no one was thinking, including myself, I wasn't like, this is a huge injustice, I'll prove them all wrong. Yeah, I was yeah. like, this is what I want to, this is what I want to write about. If yeah. this is what it's worth, it's what it's worth, right? Like there wasn't yeah. a part of me that was like, I know better than you. It was like, this is what I want to write about. And if you're going to pay me any amount of money, that sounds pretty great. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so I, I think I, I, I had this sense that it would be, as I was in the corporate world, then I had this sense that it could resonate in that world. I was not at all thinking professional sports. I wasn't thinking uh, military. I wasn't thinking uh, politics. Uh, I, I, I just, I, I had some sense that it had worked for me and could work for people like me. I think what I missed is there's a reason this 2000 year old philosophy has resonated across so many different cultures and professions is that there is something profoundly universal in it. And so why, so that was the, I didn't realize you had taken less for that book. That's wild to me because that book took, was it a, was it a, and it didn't take but off it was right a slow away. Build then? It, 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 it's yeah, it sold maybe thirty, forty thousand copies in its okay. first year, uh, and then it sold more than that every single year since it's come out. Uh, may have even sold more copies every year than the year before. I, I don't know if that's exactly true, but it is. You know, it's been like this, okay. um, and doesn't seem to have slowed down ex- much at all. But like. It wasn't even like as all all I could feel was that, and this is what I think as a writer, as a creative person, you have to use as your metric. I felt that I had connected with the ball, that I'd swung the bat and connected with the ball. You just, you don't know when it comes off the bat, is it going to go, you know, into center field? Is it going to go over the the wall? Is it going to go out of the stadium? Are they going to catch it, like catch it? as it looks like it's going to do that, you don't know. All you can focus on is trying to connect with the ball. That's it. And and I felt like I'd done that. I could not, it would have been profoundly delusional yeah. to have predicted what it would go down and do. Right. If you had walked into, I guess it was Penguin Random House or Portfolio and said, hey, this is the one. So buckle Boy, up, yeah. buckle up. This is, <laughs> yeah, you exactly. know, Adrian, yes. Adrian Zakheim, gather the team. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah, that would that yeah, would have been exactly. wild. I was hoping that for me and every other writer who might be listening to this, that you could assure us that once you've sold four million books, you never doubt yourself again, and there's no more stress. And like that's the magical. Like you feel confident for the rest of your life. Is that? Can you verify that? Because that's what I'm hoping for. Um, you would. <laughs> you do. You do feel conf- The more you've done a thing, you feel more confident in your ability to do the thing. Uh, I don't think you ever actually feel like I think it's not imposter syndrome exactly, but I think it's the opposite of ego. If you feel like I've got this, everything I do touches, it turns to gold. Like, uh, you know, as you said, um, uh, this is it. You know, if if that's your feeling, that's probably counterproductive because you're actually not putting in the work. You need that. uh, Floyd, uh, Floyd Patterson famously said, like, if you're not afraid when you step in the ring, like, you're not you're not going to be everything you need to be you you don't you've lost an edge if you don't think you yeah. can lose 
right? You obviously yeah. have to believe you can win, but if you don't think you can lose, like that's the guy that's going to lose because you're going to make a mistake, right? Or you're going to you're going to not do something you could have done that could have improved your chances of winning. So I think that edge is always there. One actually, it wasn't obstacle or daily stoic really taking off that helped me the most. I, I did a book a few years later called Conspiracy, which is about. Uh, Peter Thiel and this secret plot he did to destroy this media outlet. Um, it was my my only work of narrative nonfiction. And I felt that that was my best book. That was the best writing that I'd done. I was most excited about it. I felt most alive doing it. I felt like I connected with it most. It was also my first book to get really much in the way of critical praise. Like it got really great reviews, um, got a lot of media attention, but it sold the worst. Uh, not like it sold terribly, but it, it's, it's like it was it was actually wonderfully freeing to do what I felt like was my best work and have it be so decoupled from success because uh, I was like, oh, you just nobody knows. And yeah. all you can do is your best. And then sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and that just is how the world works. And you're still alive. Like you're on the other side of that. And yeah, so any yeah. fear that like, because yes. my, what I think is one of my best written books that had the best endorsement I've ever had, the best marketing I've ever had was, was it sold the least. And I, I remember being like, huh, okay, okay. Like, so I guess we're writing yeah. another book. Like, let's, let's go, let's go write another book. And I, I really felt like I had done my best. I, I only have a few more questions. I'm curious about right. the book. Well, also, I would just I would just say to add to that is also you don't know like you're only able to look at it on the time frame that's currently available to you, right? Yeah. So like you actually you're you don't know in two years that book could suddenly find a new life and sell yeah. 10x the copies that it sold in the first. Like you also don't know, right? And so I think just the idea of like I connect with the ball. I let let whatever happens happens from there. That's my job. And then you leave other like it, or it could remain the worst selling book of your career, but be the most loved book of your career. You know, like you, you don't know. So I, I just feel like you just can't think about it. You don't control it. So you try to put as little thought into it. Well, as and possible. spend as little time on the back end going, OK, well, what could I have done? Like you're past where you need to, to dwell on that, where there's new projects, there's yes, new. Yes, exactly. Um, it's how I, how I kind of think about it. Speaking of books, tell us about the bookstore. What inspired you to buy, start, build, run, you know, all the, because it's a fantasy for a lot of writers that I assume is very easy to do. You just, there's a bookstore and like people drink coffee there. And it's like, it's like every movie I've ever seen where somebody owns a bookstore. But what got you into that? Uh, it was my wife's idea, actually. Usually the crazy ideas for, are for me. Uh, this was her idea. But I, we, we wanted to I'd – I'd worked from home for a very long time and or partly worked from home. And we wanted to sort of create a separation of church and state, right? Like we wanted to get out of this is a little hot. Like this is a side thing we do. Over, and so we were looking for space, for office space. And uh, in this little town near where we lived, they had this, this historic building – uh, that had space up top, but it was retail down below. And uh, I was I was bringing up how I needed the space. And my wife was like, but what if it was a bookstore underneath? And this crazy idea was was one of those things. I, sometimes you hear a crazy idea, you have to say it's a crazy idea. Sometimes because it sounds crazy is exactly why you should do it. 
And uh, we ended up sort of doing this thing. Obviously, the pandemic was, you know, made it seem even crazier for a long time because uh, it happened after we pulled the trigger on it. But um, it's it's become wonderful in that it's become sort of the base for me. And it's this cool way to be involved in a community, to help authors that I like, uh, to, to weirdly understand the business of books a little bit better also. Um, but it, it's it's been immensely rewarding and actually a lot of fun. It's been a lot of work, too. But uh, it was both harder and a lot more straightforward than I thought. I, I have found that in my career. People go, I've always wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. And then you do it and you realize it's like there's no like gatekeeper preventing you. From yeah, yeah. Doing no, it. Like, there was no committee. It, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You just got you just got to do it. So speaking of books, um, if you were gonna say these are on my like Mount Rushmore of books I think people should read. Um and it, you, you can answer sure. it that way, or you can answer, th- these are books I've given away more than any other book other than my own. Like, if somebody sure. asked me for a book, these are the four that I think are important. I'd say Mark Cerealis' Meditations. Yep. Uh, the Gregory Hayes translation is my favorite. Uh, Robert Greene's Mastery. Uh, Stephen Pressfield is actually just here yesterday. Uh, so I'd say The War of Art. And then yeah. I read this book at the beginning of the pandemic. I've thought a lot about it. This is... Uh, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's Leadership in Turbulent Times uh, about not just regular leadership, which is hard enough, but leadership when things are falling apart. Uh, I've, I've given or talked about those books probably more than any other books. That's a, that's a wonderful list. Was Pressfield in town doing a book signing? Was he doing an event with you guys? No, he, he, he wanted to, I was doing the, po- I was doing my podcast with him, which we shot downstairs and then he, he was seeing some people here. So it worked out really nice he's like one of the great oh yeah he is uh, other than robert probably shaped or influenced my career as a writer uh and creative more than any other person. i would i would 100 percent say the same he he sent me a note back when i was writing my first nonfiction. it's 11 years ago i still have it printed out that and said quit whatever else you're doing and focus on writing and he was like i'll get you the oh end. man that is beautiful. and it was just two or three paragraphs that were above and beyond anything he had to do. He didn't, he didn't know me at all. It was just, I'd sent him a chapter that I was like, Hey, what do you think about endorsing? And just went out of his way. And may, anytime I don't feel like oh, a real wow. writer, I read that and go, Oh, yeah. wait a second. Like, let's go, let's go. Oh, that's so um, good. So he was, Isn't it crazy? The impact that you can have on somebody's life with just like a note or a letter or a conversation like that. Um, and yet we, we sort of, don't consciously think about doing that often enough. Yeah. And that's the other reason I have it hung up is that I want to do that for other people, but I forget that. Or I, yeah. I think the word, the email won't matter. It's just an email. It's just a tweet. It's just whatever. And again, it was probably 10 sentences, but it, it meant the world to me. How many books do you read a year roughly? Like, are you like a guy that's like, you've got it as a goal? Is it just a bunch? Is it, it's, I mean, it seems like based on reading your books that you're, there's never a moment where you're not reading. Like right now you're reading with your feet somehow, like you're, you're always reading, but what does it look like in a practical sense? I, I'm just, I'm always reading. Uh, it's nice cause I get to see it as my job. Uh, my wife understands this a little bit more now running the bookstore. She's like, Oh, I get it. There's like a, yeah. an ROI to doing this. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I'm just I'm just always reading. I don't I don't have a number. Uh, I don't think about it um, that way because oftentimes I'm rereading books or I'm reading parts of books. But I just try to always be reading. And just like if you're always reading or you're always writing, published work comes out of the other side of that. Yeah, 
Yeah. You know, you're putting or, ideas or, into or the machine. insight or knowledge comes out of the other side. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're, there's going to be a product that, that exists from that. Ryan, I could talk to you all day. I love your process. I love discipline is destiny. Um, I think the people that, that listen to this episode are going to love it too. Last question. This is always an easy one. Uh, where can people find out more about you, more about the book? Oh, thank you very much. Uh, this was awesome. I appreciate it. Uh, RyanHoliday.net is my website. Uh, I do a daily email about Stoic philosophy every day, totally for free at DailyStoic.com. And then I do a parenting email every day for free also at DailyDad.com. And you have a reading recommend- recommendation email too that's what, like 200,000 people? I mean, that's Something like helpful. that, yeah. Thank yeah, you. So no, that's, where uh, where that's, do people get I, that one? I've done that since the beginning. That's on my way. If you just go to ryanholiday.net, it's right there on the top. That's an amazing resource for readers. And there's a lot of people that, that love you. books on this, um, on this podcast. So it was great to see you again. I know it's been a couple of years since uh, uh, thanks, the man. last event. We've got a, a bunch of mutual friends. Um, excited about the book. Excited about the next one after that. How far out, how many books out are you thinking about right now? Is it, you've got two or three that you're working? Well, you're kinda- I, I'm just thinking about this, this four book series, which I'm like at the halfway point on. And then I'm doing a, a, a daily dad book, a version of the email into a book. So those are like, that's, uh, that's the full extent of my, uh, my ability to think ahead right now. Is those. That'll be, that'll be really fun. I just did a book with my daughters, my teenage daughters. And that was, you're going to love doing oh, wow. that someday with your kids. It's, it was a really fun experience. Um, to see the way they think we're doing podcasts right now, which has been amazing to hear their interpretation of some of these questions they get asked by people. So cool. And so, yeah, you'll have, I, I know at some point you'll do that with your kids and you'll just, you'll just have a blast dude. So man, thank you so much for uh, making time for this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my interview with Ryan holiday today. We'll put all the links in the show notes as always. And thank you for reviewing my podcast. I got one the other day from somebody named newbie MS which was super encouraging. Here's what they said. I love how John actually gives you real world action items that you can take and run with. You're not gonna listen to some fluff with no real substance. I I really appreciate you saying that, newbie MS, because that's the goal. I wanna give you guys real actions you can apply to your goals immediately. So thanks for viewing the podcast. Keep those coming. Please make sure you subscribe or follow or whatever it is the kids are saying these days. I'll catch you next week. And remember, all it takes is a goal. And don't forget to pick up your copy of the Finnish Calendar. Brand new, massive, beautiful, double-sided, vertically or horizontally, paper or dry erase at finishcalendar.com. Once again, that's finishcalendar.com. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the All It Takes is a Goal podcast and to get access to today's show notes and exclusive content from John Acuff, visit acuff.me slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the All It Takes is a Goal podcast.